Okay, ladies and gentlemen, today we have Dustin Baumley, GM over at Alpine Industrial Manufacturing. So this is actually a friend of uh, one of our team members here that we invited on because we wanted to talk everything manufacturing. So Dustin, thank you for coming. I really appreciate it. Yeah, so um, I'll just, like I said, I want to dive in kind of with your history a little bit. Um, Alpine, how you even started the bow archery side of things, all that, you know, how did you even, you said you were sweeping the floors there when you first got started or something like that. How did yeah. you get started? Well, I mean, if, if you want to go from the history, um, my uncle passed away when I was about 13, 14 years old. And uh, my grandparents gave me his archery equipment. That's cool. And, uh, and I started uh, shooting a bow when I was in my teens. Uh, it, it's kind of interesting because I went to a private school, private Christian school, and we didn't have a lot of sports um, opportunities, and so I took up archery. And it was something that I was pretty decent at. Um, I had a couple of older men that kind of took me under their wing and, and taught me how to shoot. And so it was something that I got very, um, very, very good at. Um, I'm trying to be humble here. No, but no, no, at no. the time, when I was a teenager, I was winning tournaments. That's and, awesome. Um, going to, uh, to different uh, shoots yeah, and yeah. met a lot of people and, uh, I loved it. That's and, so cool. Um, so it kind of led me into the industry. I wanted to work in that industry. And, um, so when I started with Alpine, I started at the bottom, I was building bows and, you know, doing some warranty work. And, uh, then I moved into a production manager type of a position. So I was orchestrating the production uh, then into more of an operations manager as the company started to change uh, what we were doing. Um, and then just about four and a half years ago, I took over as general manager of the business. That's awesome. Um, bows only at the time when you were when you were going up through the ranks? Or was it you guys doing also the machining side too? Machining side as well. Okay. But um, we were doing bows and accessories. Um, you know, on our accessory line, we outsourced some of that stuff because it was uh, plastic injection molding and, yeah. you know, some of that type of um, stuff, but for the most part, any of the metal machine work, yeah, yeah, uh, we did all of that in house. So we don't have any lathes that you saw, you know, in which no. we would have any need for them. But I do know a little bit about that, just from you know, wood shop and kind of tinkering on my own and stuff. But um, can you kind of walk me through some of the equipment a little bit, especially the lathes? That always stuff always interests me, and I do know some of the models. Can you kind of walk me through what you guys have now? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, well, we actually have uh, eight. Uh, currently, we have eight of old screw machines they're all brown and sharp okay screw machines from 1940s and 50s vintage That's cool um they were uh basically taken out of the lime mines when wow. the, the military had them yeah. built during yeah. the war effort um and then they would take them out and sell them off and we bought at one point in time we had 15 of them and we've narrowed that scope down to eight um we have eight cnc lathes uh six of them are akuma okay captain lathes um of those six, five of them have live tooling. And then we have two Haas uh, lays that have sub-spindles and Y-axis milling. So wow. they they can do quite a bit more. A lot more versatility there for sure. Um, we have two Swiss lays. They're Citizen Swiss lays. And they have nine axis milling. They're pretty amazing machines. And then I have five Haas CNC milling machines. So wow. we have a lot of capacity. Um, and we can pretty much make anything. That's awesome. So was that equipment also being used when you guys were doing bows and stuff even way back then? Some of it. We've increased our capacities quite a bit over the last four or five years. Um, but we did do a lot of mill work and we got into the lathe work and the screw machine stuff. Um, it really, we expanded that at one point in time, uh, since the outdoor industry is so cyclical, we needed yeah. to level out, um, our sales. And so we got into doing some job shop work with the screw machines. And then we got into the, into the lathe work at that point in time. But at, we were originally, we had CNC machines and we were doing all the milling in house for our archery products. Um, are you like self-taught with all this work? Is yes. This, wow. Yeah. So you know, are you still, is there still, are you still learning even after doing all these years, you know, something new, new equipment, new styles, or is it kind of like, you feel like you've been around the loop kind of with everything that there is to, to know uh, about this? You know, honestly, I have the mindset that if you can't learn something new every day, it, life is <laughs> worth it. I, mean, I agree. You, you really need to learn something new every day. Yeah. So, you know, I personally like to challenge myself to go out and try to figure something new out every day. And, yeah. and with the amount of machinery we have and the different uh, customer base that we have, uh, it's not hard yeah. to learn something yeah, awesome. new every day. You know, like we were talking out there, um, the balance between 
good machinery, like, you know, and then like traditionalistic stuff. I'm always trying to get smarter, learn more, you know, same kind of, I like that same kind of mentality. Um, you know, and we have some equipment that I showed you, like those stitcher machines are from the sixties and seventies, you mm. know, and they're cool, but if a part breaks, you're kind of, you're kind of done. And, and so to speak, there's ways and stuff, but, um, is there similar things? Is your equipment old, new? Is it the same kind of style a little bit like with these lathes that the older ones, if something breaks, like there's only that one guy somewhere who can work on the it. The old screw machines, the Brown and Sharps and the double offs are that way. And wow. we're getting to the point now where, uh, we're actually having to buy either used parts, search out and buy used parts. If we have a failure yeah. or fabricate something in order to make the machine work. So I do foresee in the, in the not too distant future that we'll end up having to upgrade those machines to NC controlled machines. Um, and there are those available, but until then, yeah. you know, we're still functioning with some of these older machines and, you know, they still hold tolerance and they still make good parts. And, but there is that we do have a guy that a guy that runs yeah. those machines. We have a guy that helps him, but, but we have a guy that runs those machines and, and he's the one that he's hard to find though. That guy is hard to find. Um, <clears throat> I'm sure you can, I can relate with you or you can relate with me on this too. Workforce, bringing on people, young people, older guys, training them, all this kind of, you know, how you doing? <laughs> how you doing with that? Dustin? <laughs> you know? Well, you know, everybody that is a trained machinist um, is trained differently than what you need them, it seems. So what I like to do personally is we bring somebody in and we start from the ground level and they start working their way up and learning new stuff all the time. Uh, we do have different um, types of items that we do. And some of those guys that are old school machinists, they have to change their mindset a little bit. Yeah. And a lot of times we have guys that don't have any experience. And I find that it's easier to bring the guy in that doesn't have experience and spend the time over, you know, three, six, nine months to get him up to speed versus having to bring somebody in that has a certain amount of experience that changing that, yeah. that has to change their mindset of how we do things. Interesting. Um, you guys are in Lewiston. Yes. Uh, smaller town, you know, it's smaller than Spokane. It's not tiny, but it's smaller than Spokane. Um, you know, guys out there, easier to find, harder to find. Do you have people coming from far away to work for you or, you know, how's that kind of system? You know, we obviously don't have the demographic to pick from like they do up in the Spokane area, yeah. Coeur d'Alene. Um, but there again, you know, our, our business is, or our company is still small enough that, and we have longstanding people. I was just looking actually the other day at, uh, the length of time that we have people employed and I have pretty much my 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 newest person there right now full time is almost two years wow that's awesome. but I've got guys there from 6 12 and in their 20s and wow. I've been with the business just barely over 30 that's special that means you guys do a good job and you take care of your people that's really good we're keeping them on board yeah that's huge we're seeing that too um you know it's like because it's a craft you know you gotta it's <clears throat> I, I, I do use the word career because I feel like you can make a career out of this and mm -hmm. there's an investment from the, from the guy, especially if someone's brand new, there's an investment of we're investing into them to teach them, but then there's an investment from them where they're dedicating time to, to kind of learn the craft. So we're, we're big on that. We try to do really a lot with the company culture side of things for people to feel like they're a part of the, yeah. the bigger mission, kind of the bigger vision. I think if you win that, if you have that, then a, a guy doesn't have a problem working somewhere for, yeah, well, 10 or 15 years. in the you know, obviously with uh, the pandemic situation that happened a few years ago, it got to the point where it was tough to find people. And I had to think a little bit outside the box. And um, honestly, we hired a couple of kids out of high school. Wow. Um, and I got one young man that's working for us right now that's still in high school, and he <laughs> he's he's great. He's going through the precision machining courses at high school, but also being able to come and apply him in the workforce and you know he asks all the right questions he's ambitious and and it's been a really really good fit for us and it also is you know good for him but i you know you also in that regard you can't expect somebody to stick around once they get out of yeah. high school they may yeah. have bigger ambitions yeah but we're giving him life skills and opportunities that's something that he can take with him even when he yeah. leaves high school goes to college figures out what he wants to do for life can you run everything in the shop can you run all the machinery Oh no! No, <laughs> <laughs> I'll I'll break stuff down if I have to go to do that. I, it's funny. At one point in time, I was versed in everything that we had, but sure. you know, we brought in some new equipment that I couldn't actually go out and run it. I mean, I'm dangerous enough to go out and 
and pull reports and find out, yeah. you know, what's yeah. going on on them. And, <clears throat> yeah, you know, I can okay. look at yeah. the cycle times and make sure things are running up to speed and make sure that things are efficient. But to actually do the every day in the machine, um, I'm I'm a little rusty a little rusty that's fine <laughs> <laughs> that's okay hey that's the, that's the normal process right because you're you're, you're going up and your other things are, are more important to you right now on the plate that you got to take care of so well, you know as long yeah. as i'm able to you know maintain our customer base yeah. and make sure that we're getting orders all the time and that we're having you know our customers are happy with the product that we're getting or that they're getting um that we're making for them um yeah. that's i kind of view that as as my job to make sure that my guys have a job. Yeah, that's right. You know, that's make sure that mentality. my machinists are busy because yes. I'm able to go out and cultivate that's some awesome. more business. Talk to me more about archery. Um, you know, that's the topic I'm interested in. I enjoy the outdoors. I enjoy doing all that. You know, you mentioned you grew up shooting in competitions. I'm sure you started hunting at a young age. Can you talk to me a little bit about equipment bows you've used? You know, kind of what you like to hunt for. Can you kind of... Well, you know, honestly, it's kind of been... It's been interesting because I started out, well, like I said, with my uncle's bow. It was a recurve bow, all traditional equipment. Um, when I was a teen, I worked a little bit with a, a sporting goods company, a little cool. uh, mom and pop shop. that, And I got my first compound bow and um, I shot my first deer when I was 15 years old with my compound bow. And um, then I got into the competition side of things. And I did do quite a bit of, of hunting at that point. Um and really, that that drove me more, I think, than the competition side. I, I got into the competition, and it really led me into the industry. But the longer I spent in the industry, the less I wanted to compete and the more I wanted to be in the woods and you know, really yeah. you know, doing the hunting. I thoroughly enjoy um, God's creation and, awesome. and being able to be out there in it. It's my, it's my battery recharge, to be honest with you. Um, but yeah, I, I competed at uh, the national and international level, and... Uh, um, in fact, I, I was going through, we moved here about a year ago and uh, going through some stuff the other day and I showed my, pulled my a bronze medal out and showed my wife and said, you know, this is North American Field Archery Championships, Canada, wow. United States and Mexico. And uh, I ended up in second place and tied and we had a shoot off and in field archery, it's four arrows per target. And we had the shoot off and we went eight targets until I dropped a point and ended up with the bronze medal. But it was honestly, it's the smallest little thing but it's the one that probably meant the most to me in my competitive career wow can you talk about the connection between your competitive career and like hunting did that make you a better archer did that make you a better hunter or unrelated you know honestly i think um i started bow hunting before i started hunting with any other firearms or weapons and uh, i think that alone made me a better hunter um it one gave me respect for the animal and uh, it made me uh, understand shot placement and uh, anatomy. I didn't, you know, honestly in school, I didn't do all that great in school until, and especially in, in science until I shot my first deer. And <laughs> so a friend of mine, my dad was busy that night and a friend of mine, uh, helped me and kind of coached me through, um, field dressing this deer. And, and once I did that, I started to kind of get anatomy cool. a little bit and understand it a little more. And so I started to pass my biology class. Really? <laughs> so, that is awesome. At any rate, wow. um, you know, the competition side of things, did it drive me to be a better hunter? I think it drove me to be a better shot. That's awesome. And it drove me to um, be more familiar with my equipment. And I think in any aspect of life, if you're if you're efficient with the equipment that you use for a job or for um, uh, even a hobby, you know, I mean, fishermen, you, they have to be yeah. efficient with their equipment. They got to understand what they're using in order to catch the fish that they're after. Yeah. And, you know, a hunter, they have to understand their quarry, but they also have to be comfortable with their equipment. And honestly, as a Christian man, you have to be, you have to be versed in your, in the word. That's right. You know, to get yeah. along in life and be able to, to, to function at a level that we as, as men, Christian men want yeah. to function. That's right. That's Raise right. our family and, you know. Equipped. The word is equipped. You, you yeah. got to be equipped yeah. and you got to be efficient with it. That's right. I, I, yeah, I, um, I could speak a lot on that. I mean. The principles that, you know, I, I'm not an avid hunter by by any means, and I've you know I've never really delved into that world. I fished a lot as a kid, and you know, camped and all that stuff. But um, you know, you just talk about this relationship between like principles of even like you know, I grew up in the church. These biblical principles, just loving the Lord, letting the letting the Lord work on me and my heart and stuff, and now seeing those life skills, how they're applying 
just in everything that I'm doing. It's like, you know, sometimes people talk about this thing. There's like, there's God, church, and family, you know, and I've changed recently my mentality. It's like God is in all of those things. Mm -hmm. And the same principles, they're in all of those things. Whether you're hunting, business, boot making, archery, it's like those principles, it's like if you can learn them and and equip yourself with them, it's just going to be, it's just going to bless you. Well, you got to be efficient. Exactly. You got to be proficient. Yeah. You know, I mean, like I was telling you before, I I grew up in a Christian school and, you know, the word of God was ingrained into us. And I even now I'm, I'm 50 years old. And there's even times now when I think back on scripture memorization when I was a teenager and I can recall some of that and cool and learn how to apply it. I was listening actually to a a message on the way up here um, to Spokane to, to do this with you. And um, it was the guy was talking about our faith and and he said, you know, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. That's right. And he was talking about uh, the word is something that is uh, transfers from generation to generation. Yeah. He says, if you put God in the center of your family, in the center of your home, your kids will understand the word and they'll understand. And and it'll be it'll be that passing down or passing on of the word. It's generational, yeah. not a generational curse, but no, a generational no. blessing. That's right. So that's, that's right. one thing that, you know, my wife and I both, we, we will be celebrating 24 years of marriage here in December. And, and we, uh, we definitely put God in the center of our home. And, you know, my boys understand that. My oldest son, he decided he wanted to go to a different church. And, you know, my wife is all about wanting to keep the family together. But I told her, I said, we're not going to die on this mountain. That's we're right. not going to fight this battle because, honestly, he's getting up in the morning on his own with a desire to hear the word and he's going to a church that preaches the word and we're not going to, we're not going to keep him from it. That's really healthy. obviously his girlfriend went to that church, but Hey, <laughs> Hey, you know, at youth group, I'll tell you all the guys, I don't know if their intentions were as much going to service for service as it was to, you know, see the ladies and that's okay. And that's good. And that's fine. And that's really funny. Yeah. That's good. I resonate. I resonate with that. One. That's good. <laughs> um, can you, can you talk a little more about, you know, I, I liked when you were just mentioning archery and hunting, um, can you talk a little bit more about, so, you know, you're learning to do these bows, you're doing this competitive archery, getting into hunting, and then, you know, you're transitioning kind of more into this machine, you know, running the business more, kind of getting up there. Do you still hunt? Is that still a passion? How has that helped you be a better leader or businessman? Or has it not? Is it unrelated? Is it related? You know, like, is, is there is there something, can you say that, you know, if, if men take up hunting or take up the outdoors, is that going to help them be better men? You know, can you speak a little bit more on that topic? Well, you know, honestly, I uh, hunting is very much a passion, a passion in my life. And um, it's something that um, my wife didn't actually, I think, truly know what she was getting into <laughs> when she married me. But um, she's learned over the years. Um, we did transition, you know, in the archery side of things. And being in that in business, it was eventually it was hard to want to go out and shoot my bow every day after I'd get off of work. Um, about four and a half, five years ago, we sold the archery brand. And so yeah. we're now Alpine industrial manufacturing and, uh, we don't do the archery stuff anymore. We still have our finger on the pulse of the outdoor industry sure, with some sure. of our, uh, DBAs doing business as, but, um, but since we've sold the archery brand, I'll be honest with you, it's, um, it's been refreshing to actually go out and, and shoot my bow or shoot a handgun or shoot a rifle yeah. and, and be involved in what I had a passion for from the very beginning. Um, I told you that, you know, going out in the outdoors is it recharges my batteries. And uh, when I spend time, honestly, just spend time in creation, yeah. you know, fresh air and, you know, seeing the animals and breathing the the air and, yeah, and yeah. watching the weather patterns and just enjoying what God's created for me yeah. and for us, you know, yeah. it does recharge my batteries. And I do think that my employees at work probably could say the same thing. Cause when I get back from a, a yeah. hunting trip, yeah. I'm usually a little easier to get along a little with bit chipper. Yeah. Yeah. So, that's funny. Um, that's good. Do I think that it, that every man should do it? I think honestly, if it's something that you desire, you want to learn more about, there's a lot of avenues to learn it. Um, you know, I've taught bow hunter education and hunter education for Idaho State Fish and Game. And, you know, seeing people succeed in that has been something that's really been fun for me. So I've been able to take my passion and actually share it. And in sharing that, you know, I, I always make sure that they have my email address. So when, 
when they are successful on their own, right? They can send me pictures and tell me stories. And, and that's one thing that I've taught my boys too, is to learn how to share in other people's successes. Yeah. And uh, if I've done nothing else right, I've done that. That's awesome. Where do you see hunting going for the state of Idaho or just in general? Is the culture improving, getting worse? What do you, what's, what's your outlook? I didn't know you used to teach honey certification. That's yeah. a, that means you're really in it. You know, talk to us about the you know future well, of hunting. You know, I, I do think that um, there's, there's several schools of thought on that. Um, there's a lot of people that'll say that hunting is going to turn into a rich man's sport. And, and there is some areas and some States uh, that it does seem that way. Yeah. Um, but there's also in most places there's uh there's still that that grassroots culture of hunter gatherer and uh, i think that as long as uh, we as hunters we're, we're conservationists you know we we really um if if you really believe in in conservation that's that's really what it is you know because if you were to just allow um a species to just be on its own and do its own thing, it's, it's going to end up dying off. Yeah. And as hunters, we actually, we, we help out the economy. Um, we also manage the wildlife and that's the biggest thing I think that hunters need to grab hold of is that we're wildlife managers. Um, and the States, there are certain States that, that use that as a tool and they use it properly. There's most States do, um, in their, in their fish and game departments. And uh, we, we have to grab a hold of that. You know, a lot of times hunting in general gets a, a bad rap because of how people personify it for those that are either anti-hunters or non-hunters. And I, I believe in anything we need to educate ourselves before we jump to a conclusion. And, you know, I try not to force that down anybody's throat. Sure, but sure. if they want to get in that conversation, <clears throat> then, then, you know, understanding carrying capacities and understanding wildlife management practices and understanding what um, you're doing to further the process. Um, I think it's a, it's a big thing. I had a friend of mine that was a, a Idaho state legislator and she was very against bear baiting. And uh, she called me up one day and she said, Hey, you know, my stance on this, but I'm, I'm interested to hear your point of view. And so we spent about an hour and a half on the phone and talked about it. And I gave her my point of view, but I also gave her uh, points to be educated on. And she went and, and educated herself on it. And she did call me back later. She goes, we have to agree to disagree. But from a legislative standpoint, she said, I understand that what you're doing is managing. You know, they, they did a, a census study in a certain area there in the state of Idaho. And the bear population, a, a healthy bear population is like one and a half bears per square mile. And overpopulation is classified as four bears per square mile well this particular area was at seven bears per square mile wow. and i think this it was done in like 1996 or 99 when that uh, census was done so they used the hunters in that area and allowed them to have two tags um and they op opened the opportunity for you know extra baiting and hound hunting and different avenues of of harvest and they did that to manage that bear population. Wow, um, that's extremely over. That's huge population. That's seven times. That's wow. Yeah, it's yeah. it's extreme. Yeah. And so they had to get control of that. But what that also did is it was affecting the deer and elk and the moose population in that area because predation was so high. So in using the hunter as a game management tool, yeah, they yeah. were able to manage several different species of animals, not just one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you kind of maybe a, it's maybe not an edgy question, but personally for me. So, you know, in the state of Washington, I don't know the details, but we've been having this thing with wolves for mm -hmm. some time, you know, and it's like I the only reason I am even really aware of this is because of our customer base. Mm -hmm. We have so many customers that come to us that I just know personally over the years that they live up north and, you know, Colville and Elk and Newport and or they live down south or and mostly it's, it's coming from the north. And, you know, they're like they're not crying, but they're borderline crying. And they're saying like, you know, our flocks and your know, herds and stuff, it's, it's a problem. They're getting, getting attacked by wolves. I also know that at one point the wolf population was like low. Like maybe I don't know. That was way back when. Can you kind of educate me personally a little bit on that? But like, what's, what's your viewpoint? And why do you think there's this divide? Why do you think there's this people who are this, you know, Hey, no, we can't do that. And they seem to not have sympathy for the farmer, but then you have the, you know, like what is the farmer supposed to do? Can you, 
decipher that a little bit. Well, you do have to understand this is all opinion when sure. I'm speaking. Of this. course, I completely <laughs> understand. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it, my father-in-law says something that I, I try to apply in many different aspects in life. It's called everything in moderation. Um, but there's, it seems that there's extremes on both sides. Yeah. Um, and so I try to be a little bit, I try to have more perspective on this than, than some people choose to. Uh, am I a proponent of the wolf? I think I, I personally see that they do a lot of damage to our wildlife herds and to the livestock in, in many areas. Um, so what I am a proponent of is just like what I was talking about with that bear yeah. uh, situation is wildlife management. And, you know, I know Idaho Fish and Game, for the longest time, the wolf was reintroduced. And the wolf that they reintroduced was not a wolf that had originally been native to the area. Um, there are lots of different opinions around that. Uh, do I think it needs to be managed? Absolutely, I do. Because if you don't manage it there again, um, it's going to take its toll on the other aspects of wildlife. And um, the wolf is something that I do think, you know, I, I've, have I harvested a wolf? Yeah, I have. I have yeah. a full body wolf mount at my house. Wow. And, you know, some people don't like that. Uh, but there again, I think I encourage them to take the time to educate themselves on really the effects of wolves. Um, they do affect uh, the wildlife. And, you know, in the area that I ended up harvesting my wolf in, uh, I was actually moose hunting. And that area has actually, they've reduced the number of moose tags in that area because of the depredation or the predation of the wolf. And the lack of moose in that area that used to be a plethora of moose. So, you know, do they affect the the wildlife and the, the livestock? Absolutely, they do. Um, in my opinion, they do need to be managed. Do they need to be eradicated? That's an argumentative point, and sure, you're going to sure. have yeah. um, different opinions for very, sure. Yeah. Varying opinions on yeah. that side. Yeah. You know, I know I have some friends that are Native American. They're Nez Perce tribe. They're out of Lewiston, and, and they were 100% for the wolf reintroduction. And that was, in my own opinion, that's really where a lot of it stemmed from, um, you know, the native Americans wanted them reintroduced the, um, and it, they have their reasons. Um, and then from the bureaucratic bureaucratic standpoint, um, with the department of agriculture or the department of, of wildlife and the federal side of things, uh, they introduced them and, and ended up not managing them. So it took a long time for, for some of the States, Idaho, Wyoming, Montana, and I'm not sure where Montana is with it. Uh, to actually get them delisted from being protected uh, so they could actually manage them. And, wow. uh, you know, our governor in, in Idaho at the time stood up and stiffened his neck and said, sorry, but we're going to do this. We're going to manage this because it's not just affecting our wildlife, but now it's starting to affect our, our livestock. livestock. Yeah. So. As a whole, do you feel that, so when I say Pacific Northwest, I would refer to, let's say, Washington State, Idaho, and Oregon. It's kind of like this little triangle. Do you feel that as a whole... And those states may vary in the way they do it, but do you think they do a pretty good job with management? Do you think that there's, obviously there's always room for improvement, but. I think each of the states has their strengths and weaknesses. Um, you know, Idaho has struggled to really produce um, quality elk, um, where Washington, especially in the in the eastern side of Washington, in the blues, they produce tremendous quality of elk. Um, you know, Oregon, they tend to have, their hunting opportunities are, have been quite good over the last couple of decades or a couple of, yeah. Have you hunted in all three states that we mentioned? Yeah. 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 Colorado, and Wyoming, those are a couple of my favorite states to hunt. That's awesome. So as a whole, the Pacific Northwest has a strength and weaknesses, but overall pretty, pretty okay. Yeah. I think every, like I say, every <laughs> state has its strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. And I mean, if you, if you want to hunt wolves, come to Idaho. If you, <laughs> if you want to hunt elk. Um, take your chance at drawing a, a spectacular elk tag in Washington. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's there's good and bad in, in everything. I mean, the quantity of elk, uh, if you're an elk hunter, is in Colorado. Uh, this year, I have the opportunity to you know go out of state again. Last year, I went to Wyoming, and was able to harvest a nice bull. But you know, it's just it's a matter of figuring it out. And sometimes yeah. you got to wait because different states they manage them differently it might take you longer to draw a tag and and that's fine if you're yeah. willing to wait and and have a crack at a at a really big trophy and it's not always about the trophy for me i like the experience but 
You know, there's there's those guys out there that want the big trophy. Yeah. I, let's be honest. Competitively, men, we're competitive. We of want course. the big trophy. Of course. Yeah, you want to go, if you're going to do it, you want to be number one, right? Yeah. Um, maybe when you were like, let's say, you know, 17, 18, 19, that season to today, um, more hunters, less hunters, more popular, less popular? Way more hunters now than there was when I was younger. I yeah. would have not thought that. I would have yeah. thought it would have been the other way around. You know, the interesting part about that, though, is um, if you go archery hunters, um, archery hunters have probably been less just simply because um, the industry as a whole uh, really struggled recruiting younger archers for a lot of years. And in the last probably eight to ten years, they've done a good job of, of starting to get back into that recruitment of, of younger um, archers and bow hunters. Um, for a long time, uh, the average recruitment age of, of new bow hunters was in that high 30s, low 40s. Wow. Which, that, wow. That's, and that's now, not young for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And now it seems to be that some of the younger younger yeah. kids are stepping up and that's really cool. Archery. It's just because it's that much more difficult than a rifle. Uh, you know, I don't, uh, there's many different things that draw people to the woods. <laughs> and, sure. And, you know, some of them really like that archery aspect because it is more challenging. You know, a lot of people will say they like archery because um, they like being in the in the woods in September rather than wait until October or November. Um, you get an earlier opportunity and usually the seasons are a little bit longer. But and, you know, your your harvest rates are less. Yeah. So your percentage of success is, is a lot less than than that of with a firearm. Very well. So. That's never. I wouldn't would have not. That's not the direction that I thought you you would have. I would have thought you would have said there would have been less hunting today, and you know it's like getting smaller and smaller. Just because it seems that maybe like the younger guys, like around my age, there's less of them that seem to be interested in those kinds of things. But it could be really area to area, you know, and just kind of like culture to culture. I think you're going to see that. I think different states are gonna are gonna do better and and worse in recruitment yeah. of of hunters. Yeah. So, yeah. Can you give us just the craziest hunting story that you've ever had? <laughs> something, something juicy. Oh, goodness. You know? This something is kind crazy. of a crazy hunting story. Yeah. Uh, so a few friends of mine, we were hunting bears and we had a young man that had never hunted bears before okay. uh, <laughs> sitting on one of the bait sites that we had. And we left him alone on the bait site and told him we'd come back when it was getting close to dark to get him. And we were literally on our way back in to retrieve him from the bait site, and we all heard a gunshot. So we made our way down to, to the bait site, and, and he gets down out of the tree stand, and I asked him, I said, well, how big of a bear was it? I, well, first of all, did you shoot? Yeah, I shot. Well, how big of a bear was it? And he goes, I, I don't know. It was medium size. And he didn't know how to judge bears and how big first they time were. For him, yeah, first yeah. time. I said, well, how big was its head? Well, I, I don't know, medium size. And I said, how big were its ears? He goes, they weren't very big. Well, big bears have little ears. <laughs> their <laughs> okay. head is big. Yeah, their yeah, ears yeah. look really yeah, small. Yeah. So I'm thinking, hmm, we might have a pretty good bear on our yeah. hands here. So we start uh, down the blood trail because it took off over the ridge. And sure. we get start going on this blood trail and it looks like a d8 cat had gone down through this foliage I'm like, oh my gosh this might be a big bear and we got down to it and we're about i don't know 15 20 yards from it and there's four or five of us and i had uh, one of my friends he was a pharmacist his name was john we called him pharmacist john he handed me his handgun because i was in the front of the line and uh walked down to this bear and i was looking at it and i thought i saw it twitch and i'm like oh yeah no big deal it's just a yeah, just yeah, a uh, yeah. just a nerve thing. Sure, you know? sure. So I hand him the handgun back, and I walk down to this bear, and it's a huge bear. I mean, it's a chocolate colored, probably three hundred and twenty five pound. And wow. in the spring, that's a big bear in the yeah. spring because they've just come out of hibernation and have one that big was uh, something to behold. Yeah, yeah. And probably one of the biggest bears I'd seen killed in that area wow. in the years that I'd hunted. And I walked up to this bear and I straddled it. And my friend Stacy, he got down right in front of it, and I grabbed hold of that bear with both hands by the ears to pull its head up, and it started snapping and growling. It was still alive. Oh my goodness! 
I jumped about three feet in the air. We all <laughs> went flying up the hill. And wow, my wow. friend Stacy dropped his bone saw right in front of it. And he, wow. he told me, he says, you need to go down and get that bone saw. I said, no, we'll get it tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> we all packed out of there and we went back in the next morning to get it. And when we got back down there to get it the next morning, it was another 15, 12, 12, 15 yards down the hill. Wow. So, wow. I'm like, we were lucky. Yeah, you know, yeah. it, it really brought to mind that adage that says familiar familiarity breeds contempt yeah yeah i was so comfortable around the bears because i've hunted them and had been around them all season and i just took for granted the fact that he could still be alive yeah 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 and so i you were so comfortable yeah 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 i grabbed hold of him and it could have meant he could have grabbed hold of me (laughs) but (laughs) we ended up getting out of there safely but it's uh it's something that was, yeah. it, when, when people talk to me about the craziest hunting story, yeah, that's yeah. probably it. Um, you know, do you hear, I mean, I, I guess I don't know the statistics or anything, maybe you, you don't either, but I mean, you know, do you hear a lot of stories like, Hey man, this bear charged me and somebody got hurt actually, or like, is that pretty rare? And a yeah. lot has to go wrong for that to happen. Yeah. Once in a while. And you know, you gotta be, you gotta be aware. You gotta keep your head on a swivel when yeah, you're dealing yeah. with a predator, especially right. when you're baiting because you're dealing with a predator at a food source. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it's probably a little different if it's, you know, maybe like a deer or elk yeah. or something like that. Cause that's not really a predator. You're well, yeah. here just last year, uh, there was a lady in Leavenworth that got attacked by a bear and wow. come to find out it was my brother-in-law's aunt. Wow. I didn't know that at the time, but you know, and I'll, you just have to be aware when you're dealing with a sow with young with cubs, uh, they're very, very, very defensive. And uh, if you're around with you know a, a sow with yeah. young, back away. Yeah, you know, yeah. Give them yeah. a wide berth. Of course, yeah. <laughs> um, let me ask you this, you know, since, and we should talk about it because this is a Royal Boot Company. I want to get your opinion a little bit about just footwear and kind of you know hunting boots a little bit because um, we always talk about maybe doing something outdoors as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what do you like? What's your ideal hunting boot, I guess? Like, you know, what are you looking for? And I mean, you've been doing this for so many years. I'm sure you've gone through lots of boots. Build me the dream, you know, build me the dream hunting footwear boot. You know, what's it going to feel me. like? What's it going to look like? What's it going to do for you? Well, I'll tell you this. I told um, Jack, uh, yeah, your, yeah. your guy that works here that's yeah. been my friend for years, I told him, I said, one hunting boot doesn't work for everything. So, what I would recommend personally is having, you know, multiple hunting boots for different yeah. applications. Yeah. Um, personally, I've hunted the tundra, the wet tundra in yeah. northern Quebec. Um, I've hunted in Alberta. I've hunted a lot of different places in the United States and different seasons. Um, I've hunted the desert down in Mexico. And last year I was able to go down and hunt in the savannah and the Karoo in South Africa. Wow. So, the application is really what's going to dictate the perfect hunting yeah, boot. Yeah, that makes a lot um, of sense. If you're uh, uh, back east and sitting in a tree stand hunting whitetails in the frigid winter cold, uh, you're going to need something that's going to basically keep your feet warm because you're sitting there doing nothing. Um, I personally, being a western hunter, I like to get out and cover the country. I like to hike. I like to put the miles on. I like having a uh, like an airbob type sole. Yeah. I personally like a sewn sole boot. Um, many like the yeah. cup sole, but yeah. I like the sewn sole. Um, I like a high, you know, at least a 10 inch yeah. upper on it because I like to have the support on my calf yeah. and Achilles tendon. Um, yeah. Is The footbed is important and I like to keep my feet warm and, and dry. So, you know, a, a thin slit insulation yeah. or, or a Gore-Tex or whatever that would keep it. Um, Just dry. Whatever membrane yeah. to keep yeah. it dry. Yeah. Um, so my perfect hunting boot would be a sewn sole with a air bob yeah uh and probably 200 400 grams stencil do you would you rather prefer something a little thinner nimble quick like flexible or maybe a little stiff heavy duty balance for sure and, you know you're never going to twist your ankle tough um, question and that might not be it is might not be an answer there yeah. again it becomes application if you're yeah. hunting early season in september and you're bow hunting and you're climbing up and down the hills chasing out you want something quick and nimble and lightweight and you know you're going to want that early season boot that isn't necessarily insulated right um if you're hunting later october november maybe even a muzzleloader season in december uh, you're going to want something that's you're going to have good traction. You're going to want to have good stability because you could be on an on a hill 
and it could get slick or muddy or, you know, icy and, and you want something that's going to give you good support. So again, I'm going to defer back to it. Yeah. All depends on the application. It all depends on the application. If you, yeah, my personal opinion is I try to have a booth that's going to cover multiple seasons. And that's why I'm saying yeah. good support. I, I'm okay with having a little bit heavier boot personally. Um, some people like the lighter boot, but yeah. I'm okay with having a little heavier boot if it offers the support and the traction that I need. How many States have you hunted? in? Do you know? Oh, geez. Um, eight or nine. How many countries? Four, Canada, United States, Mexico, and South Africa. So you've been, you've definitely been around a lot of different communities of hunting and different cultures and, you know, thoughts on it as well. You know, talk to me a little bit, maybe from like, maybe the branding kind of marketing side, you know, what type of individual is a dedicated hunter? Like, and what, what are they, like, how do we talk to them? You know, because I want to be able, if we're, we're going to do this and getting kind of into the outdoor game, we want to speak their language, you know, and like, what do you think? What do, what do you think is the temperament of a hunter? What is what are they after? What are they like? You know, what are they usually, you know, I'm, there's not a lot of professional hunters that do it full time. So usually they, they probably have careers and jobs and other things. Like, what does that person usually look like? Well, I mean, big question. I know that's a big it question. Is. That's, yeah. a, that's a very broad question yeah. because, I mean, you have to cater to when you say professional hunter. I mean, in, in South Africa, for instance, they call them a PH, which is a professional hunter, and they physically go through classes and have to be. Um, basically licensed um, in the United States, you can go through uh, some of that stuff and get a guide's license. I personally have, I, I've been a licensed guide for several years That's and awesome. um, have the opportunity to go out and do that um, to cater to the customer base. I, I really think that's, that's broad because honestly, some of them, some hunters are weekend warriors. They, they are just going to go out there. They're looking for an inexpensive piece of footwear yeah. that is going to last them a couple of weeks every season. Yeah. Um, then you've got your hardcore guy that's, you know, they, they don't work the months of September, October, November. They take them all <laughs> off and they, and they hunt and, yeah, and they, yeah. they fish and they, they get out in the, in the wilds and, and they really, they may use a boot in, in a season. They may wear it out. I mean, it's, you're going to have the guy that's willing to spend 600 bucks on a good pair of boots. And you're going to have the guy that's going to be like, I wouldn't spend 30. Yeah. yeah. Um, because it's only got to last me three weekends of the season. You know I mean? It's, it's really broad. How do you get to those guys? Honestly, um, that's probably a mythical question (laughs) because it's really tough. I mean, there's, if you were to look and watch the outdoor channel, and how different companies are branding their their companies. You know, there's a lot of different um, viewpoints on marketing and yeah. how how to reach certain people. And you know, you have to pay attention to the guy that is the economy minded guy, and you got to be uh, pay attention to the guy that's that hardcore true blue. I'm I'm out there giving it everything I got all season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that's a tough question. When you guys were doing the archery, you don't do it now, but when you were doing making bows. Um, were you a higher price point, lower price point? And did you have, did you feel like, you know, Hey, we made, did you guys have a couple different price points or was it just like, this is the one bow that we made and this is who we're making it for. Like, did you, what, what was the experience there with kind of that? We had part? entry level product, um, for the entry level guy. Um, we really targeted the young archer, the youth, um, with our micro line. Uh, but then we also had a flagship high end product, um, every year. And that's the one thing that, that, I think any company struggles at is having that, that breadth and being able to maintain it. Um, and that's the one thing that we did see in the archery industry is that, you know, we didn't advertise as well as some of the other bigger companies, your Matthews and PSE and Hoyts. Um, and so to be able to get the product off the shelf, um, wasn't as easy for us, but what we did notice is that our mid price point was always the one that we had higher sales on. Not necessarily the entry level, not necessarily the flagship, but yeah. our mid price point. Very interesting. And usually younger generation getting into it. Was that cool? You guys were kind of targeting. Uh, yeah, it was, it was across the board. Yeah. Age band. Yeah. And today Alpine, you know, not doing archery anymore. You guys aren't even really marketing to the world. It's more 
you know, direct to business, right? So you guys are working yeah. with B2B, so business to business. Yeah, we're yeah. pretty much now, we sold the archery brand and the company that took it over was a longtime archery distributor. And uh, they basically elected to get out of the bows and they still produce the accessory line. Uh, and they do a great job at it. Yeah. Um, what we've done is we've morphed into a job shop manufacturing facility. So, so we don't necessarily have to go out and advertise to the world that, hey, this is a product that we offer because we're not trying to target a, con a consumer necessarily. Right. necessarily. We're, tra we're targeting another you know, manufacturer. We're building uh, component parts for something else that's bigger. Yeah, you know, we do yeah. a lot of work for the local jet boat manufacturers, uh, home heating industry, uh, irrigation industry, mining industry, um, concrete plants, yeah. precast yeah. plants. Different, different, uh, different business. You know, for yeah. for us, we're <clears throat> complete opposite in terms of you know we're only consumer focused because we're yep. direct to customer. You know, so you know we have conversations like I was showing you today, like with our website. You know, always. Tinkering with this, tinkering with that. You know, can we make it more simple? Can we make it more mm -hmm. easy to understand? You know, so it's a greater challenge in the fact that you really are trying to cater to as many people with you know one piece of communication, right? Because we we can't have ten different websites for ten different yeah. ways to perceive information. It's you know one website. So how do you have a silver bullet in a sense? Um, but the reward is great because when you work direct to customer or direct to consumer. You know, we're not working through another retailer and we, we keep more, there's more profit in it, but there's more work, but the reward is there, you know? Mm -hmm. And also I think it's a little bit of a deeper relationship because then you have the consumer who, like they fall in love with the brand and they're with you for, for years. Yeah. And that's cool. Um, and that's special. You know, and we, we yeah. saw that in the archery yeah. world too. Yeah, I'm we sure still you did. had our, yeah. you know, true blue dyed yep. in the wool yeah. alpine archery guys. Yeah. yeah. In fact, we still hear from them once in a while. That's cool. But yeah. But yeah. where we're at now, you know, it really, um, we aren't direct customer, like you yeah. say. And, uh, but the business itself and manufacturing itself doesn't change. You're yes. still making a product, um, following up on your quality control yes. and making sure that the product that you send to the customer and ultimately the end user is still maintains, yes. you know, the integrity and the design criteria and the stuff that it needs to. So, you know, whether you're making boots or whether you're making irrigation parts, you know, they still have to be made right. They still have to be made well. And they, it's, it's a lost art. Like we were discussing this when we walked through yeah. the, the shop, you know, the, the lost art of domestic manufacturing. It's, it just, it's hard. It you is. know, that's why, you know, it's, it's a challenge. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I feel like I only shared with you like a tip of the iceberg when we're walking back there, you know, like, <laughs> Even, even this thing that we have these, you know, three QC stations, you know, um, that, that alone is just like a sliver. And I wish I probably need more, you know, like, because it's just, it's such a, you know, to, to be sure of, first of all, I want to say, I, th I don't think it's impossible to be sure of every single thing that, you know, like I want to, I want to, I, I believe that we can keep getting closer and closer, but will we ever be 100% perfect? Probably not. Will anybody, any manufacturing facility be? Probably not. You know, it's like. I sometimes get on the phone with people who have way bigger facilities than we do. And like I mentioned, you know, they're, they're shaking their head. They don't know how they're still, you know, how they're surviving. And I say inside to myself, oh man, if only you knew, you know, so yeah. um, it's this relentless pursuit, you know, domestic manufacturing is hard and um, it's a relentless pursuit and the commitment is good and it's right. And the, the commitment is more like, you know, this is our heart. We, we love making stuff here the team and the company, it's the, the, the DNA is made in USA, right? So that's never going to go away. And mm -hmm. so it makes me feel good. Like, you know, what feels really good is I feel good when we, let's say, you know, you made a certain amount of boots for the month or the week or the year or whatever. And then when you look at the statistic of, yeah, you know, we had some, whatever, this might've been done wrong or that was incorrect. But when then you look at the rate, what makes me happy is when I see the ratio, when I see that, wow, okay, well, look how many successes we had, you know, look how many customers yeah. received their product and was like, I, you know, right away, day one, it was perfect, you know? And so, yeah, you know, the mistakes that you make, anybody makes mistakes and you just follow up with it and you make it right. But what makes me happy is when I just see like, okay, yeah, we had some mistakes, but we fixed them, resolving it. But look at the successes, like look yeah. at the victories. And unfortunately, the, fa the any failure you have always resonates louder and it gets you kind of down and stuff. But yeah, I, we remind ourselves often because we have so many to look at and it's so awesome to see like we made that product right here and this guy wore it for 
seven years, eight years, sent it back for a resole twice. Mm-hmm. He's on his, you know, now he's getting his third set or whatever. And that first set he still has, you know, like that is, you know, money can't replace, like that's special. You know, that ultimately is special. And plus it's our dad's name on it, you know, JK. Yeah. So that's special to know that right now, somewhere out there, you know, more than one guy is wearing a pair of our boots. Who's just loving them. And he's doing a really hard job and it's standing up to the test. That's like awesome. I mean, you could say that's kind of the reason that we do what we do. So it makes it worth the grind and the challenge. I think you and I are a lot alike. You probably walk around and when you see somebody wearing a pair of JK boots, you're like, hey, that's right. Those. That's right. I mean, they did a, a complete restructure, reconstruction of the, the bottom of 21st Street in Lewiston. And when I was going, I drive through that, that intersection every day, going yeah. to work and coming home. And when they were doing that construction, I saw uh, some parts from a company that we do business with and that we make parts for. That's cool. And they were using those those parts in that reconstruction. And so every day I drive through that intersection, I think there's Alpine Industrial Parts right here, right now. And we see jet boats driving up and down the river. And, and my son, he, he gets tired of me saying it, but we'll drive by one of the one of the places. I'm like, oh, there's... We, we built parts for that or we got parts on that. And, <laughs> yeah. But you're yeah. proud of that. And that's yes. something that that's something that we have to instill in our kids. That's something that, you know, even uh, the older generation and and generation like myself and like you, we we have to be proud of that. And we have to make sure that they understand that, yes. you know, when you put your hand to do something, you do the best you can. And you can be proud of that when you walk away from it. Yes. So my son is a, my younger son works in a tire shop. And he made a statement to me a while back. He goes, Dad, every single time that I do a job on somebody's car and put tires on or wheels on, they are putting their life in my hands, and I take that seriously. Wow. And we'll be driving down the road. He's like, oh, hey, I, I put tires on that truck yesterday. And I'm like, and it makes me feel good because he has a sense of pride in what he's doing. Yeah. And that's what we have to instill in our kids. That's what we have to instill in the next generation. Take pride in what you're doing. Do the best that you can. And yeah, we need to be humble. But on the same token, if you take pride in something, you're going to do well at it. Yes. It's a spirit of excellence. Spirit of you excellence. You want to carry that spirit of excellence. And there is a pride to it, but it's a healthy pride. It's a, I don't even want to use the word pride. It's more of a, it's more of a like, oh man, it's, it's, it's pride in the sense of it's love more than anything. I think mm-hmm. I, I think I love the product. I love the success. I love the victory. I love the integrity. And so mm-hmm. when you do it out of love and out of this like drive and ambition to just be better, that's good. Like that's from the Lord. That's, that's, that's this spirit of excellence. It's this, you know, understand like righteousness under, you know, some, you know, some people, you know, the church have different opinions, but I believe that God first makes you righteous and then you start doing good things. You don't start doing good things and then become righteous. You know, like Jesus made us righteous and then we do good things. So I, out of love, want to do all this good work, have a good company, like make people happy, good product. Like that's a pure and good desire. And ultimately, you know, I could tell you a million stories of like some just, you know, <laughs> mistakes we've made and, you know, and then the ways we fixed them and then people that maybe are upset with us, but it doesn't matter. It, it matters in the sense that make it right, fix it. But what matters more is keep the drive, yeah. keep the love, keep the ambition. And that's a universal principle. You know, if we weren't doing boots and we were doing furniture or a construction company, it, those same principles would still 100%. But you said something there that is the key to that. Jesus made us righteous. That's right. You know, God looks at us as sinful man, but he looks at us through the filter of the blood of Jesus. Right. Jesus made us righteous. You know, I, I heard something the other day um, in the story of Nehemiah, and he was talking about, you know, these battles. You, we're fighting. We need to fa- stay focused on the battles that we, we, we need to stay focused on specific battles. And how do we as Christians battle? How do we fight the good fight? First, we pray. And second, get this, we do good. That's right. It says we, we fight evil with good. So you said, you know, Jesus made us righteous, then we do good. Yeah. So that's part of, that's that's part part of our of battle. Yes. Is, you know, first we pray, but then we, we fight evil with good. That's right. We do good. And we, we're built, I'm, you know, I'm built, like, it's business, but if anything, I'm building it with almost the sense of like, I'm going to build this thing and make it awesome. It's, it's for the kingdom. It's to do good. You know, um, when I was younger and maybe I don't do that, I don't do this much more, but I remember we used to do this where, um, there were a couple of moments where I would like, 
you know, when it's just you, your dad and your brother and you're, you know, you sold a pair today and you're like freaking out, you know, because it's awesome. You know, that, that's that's the level that we came from. Right. And I remember we used to sometimes I'd like pray for the boxes that we would ship out. Just like, you know what? Let's just this boot bless this person and bless this individual. That's that's awesome. Trying to have a great business, trying to make customers customers happy, and honestly trying to do a good product. Like, it should bless that person's life. Mm -hmm. It should, it should, you know, and you could say it's just boots. And yeah, it is really just boots, ultimately. I mean, we're not performing, you know, brain surgery here. It is just boots. But even though with it being just boots, it can still bless that individual. And if I'm going to do anything, I want it to be done from that place of, like, let it just bless this person. Mm -hmm. And when you put your, your you know, yourself in the shoes of the consumer, like, yeah, man, I mean, it is it is a higher price point product. It is, you know, it is handmade. It is, you know, and it's also serious, too. I do believe that the individual who depends on their boots every day, like, it is serious because mm -hmm. if your feet hurt, if you're uncomfortable, if the, the boots are falling apart, you, you don't have time to worry about that. You, you got to focus on the task. And it's my job to make sure that our product meets that center that they don't have to worry about yeah. that. So it is an endeavor not to glorify, you know, like too much and not get, not get too, you know, dramatic about it. But if you really dig into it, it is serious. And it is, it is something that we do take with, with pride and definitely an ounce of like, like, Hey, we need to do a good job because people do depend on this product. And I'm sure that you guys relate a hundred percent. If you're doing parts, for you know whatever the stuff you mentioned the, the um, construction on the street like that's mm -hmm. serious and if yeah. if your parts aren't going to meet the task I mean that's that's heavy you know those well, are consequences you you have to take you have to go at it with that attitude I'm, yeah. am I willing to put my signature on these parts that that's right. we're sending out the door to the to the customer and and you have to I yeah mean, you got to make sure that they're up to up to par they they meet the quality standards yeah because that's what they're paying their money for you yeah to you to do yeah. and you, know, you have to take that seriously and that's one thing that i i do really appreciate about my crew at alpine is that they take every bit of what they do seriously they're they don't do things halfway they're completing the job and they're doing the best that they can they're and, going all the way and yeah. and i have a good crew i got a you know it might be small but i get a, a solid crew of, of guys and they yeah. they take pride like i was telling you they've been there a while yeah most of them have been there a while and and i take pride in that to know that I've got guys that, that are proud of the quality of the stuff that they're producing. That's awesome. That's so good. Um, I just had this question, this thought. Um, you know, we're talking about kind of the, the integrity of the product. Um, the integrity of the hunt, you know, that's a big topic, right? Um, you know, I mean, that that's huge. And there's I'm sure you could tell a lot of stories there. But are, how well does, you know, I would say hunting in the U.S. do with the culture of maybe repercussions for people who don't have the integrity for the hunt? And, you know, do, do hunters come in with this attitude of like, this is kind of borderline sacred and we want to treat the, you know, treat this with all respect. As a teacher, do you make sure to instill that into the people that are getting their certification? And maybe like, how do you do that? You know, like, mm -hmm. how do you relay that message? You know, that, that, uh, that all relates back to what is in their heart. I'll just be honest with you because there's people out there that don't do it for the right reasons. And there's people that do. And, um, I think that instilling that in young people from yeah. when they first start, uh, is a big thing. Personally, my son, um, he started shooting and, and he hasn't been real, uh, active in archery, but he started shooting, um, a rimfire rifle when he was seven years old. And I made sure to make sure, to, to instill in him how important it was to make the very first shot count and to to always do well with with what you're doing and and he repeated himself you know repetition that's how we learn he repeated himself constantly you know I'm, I'm opening the breach and I'm loading the breach and I'm closing the breach I'm pulling the hammer back fire in the hole repetitively 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 um, and as he got to be a good shot, I started to teach him more about the anatomy of the animal, make the first shot count. And, you know, I, I got to be careful saying this because if he listens to this podcast, you know, I'm a decent shot, but that kid could outshoot me nine times out of 10 and twice wow. on Sunday. That's I mean, so he's cool. such a good shot and I'm so proud of him and he won't take a shot unless he knows that it's going to be a quality shot. And um, he also understands that he owes it to that animal. He's taken the life of an animal from a game management perspective. Um, there are those people out there that are just willing to shoot anything and everything that they can. And, you know, and we all make mistakes, 
you know, we all miss and we all make mistakes. I've made my fair share of mistakes yeah, in yeah, learning yeah. and, and understanding different things. And, you know, I've, I've done things that I probably shouldn't have with regards to, um, the integrity of the hunt that you were yeah. talking about. And, but I've grown to the point that, you know, in, especially in teaching young people, you know, you have to make sure that you, you have, you owe it to the animal to make a good shot. You owe it to yourself. I agree. And, um, you know, it, just like in business, you know, you owe it to yourself to do quality yeah. work. Yeah. You know, I'm, you're ultimately at the end of the day, like I said, you got to put your signature on it. Yeah. You got to be able to say, you know what, today, even just me personally, at the end of the day, I get ready to go to bed and I'm like, am I willing to just sign off on the day and say it was a good day? Have I done everything in my power to make it a good day? Have I done everything in my power to do things right and to follow through with the things I needed to follow through with? Yeah. And granted, you know, I'm human. I make mistakes and there's days and I, I say, I'm not going to sign this document. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm going okay. to go to bed and, and start all over tomorrow. Yeah. But you know, the integrity of the hunt is, is a big deal. You have to make sure that, that you, um, that you do things right. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, there's people out there that have the mindset that they aren't gonna, they're going to just do what they want to do regardless of what the law says. And, yeah. and there's people out there that, that follow the law to the letter of the law. And there's people out there that live in the gray area. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and it's, it all makes an impression on people that don't hunt or don't have those experiences. And, you got to be careful about this. Yeah. So. I've um, recently, in the last couple of years, I've done a lot of traveling abroad. Um, you know, so I was I was in Europe a couple of times, and South America. I've been into Africa, and um, let's just take Africa as an example. So I was in Ethiopia. Actually, I was there for a gospel crusade. I was in it was in Ethiopia. I was in Addis, um, which is the capital, and then another city called Ambo. And um, you know, for for a long time, so I grew, was born in America, grown you know, born and raised. Love America is amazing, and I always wondered, like, you know, there's so much law in America, like so much rule and litigation stuff. And sometimes I would wonder, like, it's, it's just sometimes overdone. I was like, gosh, like, there doesn't have to be a code for that thing. Like, you know, it's like, geez, you know, just like loosen up a little bit. And then when I went to Ethiopia, I saw what it looks like when there's, when there's very little mm -hmm. litigation, very little law and code. Not like lawlessness like crime, but like building code and the streets certain widths and lights and and you know sidewalks and you know, all these things like the things that we don't really think about and i think that this might translate well also kind of into hunting i i, gotta, I don't know what hunting is like in other parts of the world but sometimes i would hear people so i come from you know slavic background my parents immigrated here to america and they love this country a lot and everything i have is we owe to america and the opportunity but other individuals sometimes and even other foreigner kind of backgrounds and communities they, when they, you come from a place that didn't have a lot of, like, let's say, like litigation or rule, you come to a place that does, they, there's kind of sometimes this attitude, and we never carry this, but like, ah, oh, geez, like those rules are like, it's too much to follow, you know? And I think that, I don't know the details, but I think that there's a parallel here where there is a lot of rules and code in hunting because we want to have a healthy, mm -hmm. awesome, great country that has healthy wildlife for a lot of years to come. Yeah. And if it wasn't there, probably you would have a similar, you know, like how I saw in Ethiopia buildings falling down because they're not meeting up code and stuff like that. You'd probably have similar things yeah. happening here. I mean, can you speak on this? Do you agree with that? Is that true? I do agree. I, you know, and I think that um, our game and fish departments across the States, um, they, they do have that in mind. They do have a, they, they do a decent job. Uh, of trying to make sure that the regulations are manageable and, and they're within reason. Um, on occasion, you know, there's some that obviously you get more of a traditionalist group yeah. that might bend the ear of that commission. And, and we found that in the archery industry for many years, the technology was advancing so fast that um, many states were keeping up with that, but some of the Western states weren't. And, you would have a, a click of traditionalists bending the ear of the commissions, keeping those regulations almost archaic um, and not advanced to the level of what technology had advanced to. Um, in some regard, that was good, but in other regard, it's it's good to stay up with what's going on. But I do think our game departments, as a, as a general rule, uh, have a pretty good balance of what the regulations should be and what they shouldn't. And granted you're going to find what you're looking for. So sure. if you're looking for 
things to nitpick apart, you'll find it. If you're looking for, you know, the quality of what they're doing, you'll find it too. What do you, what would you say is the most entry level, easiest tag or hunt to do for a beginning hunter? And maybe what's like very extreme and advanced? <laughs> well, hunting is never a guarantee. And, you know, if people go at it from the idea that, oh, I'm going to go out and I'm going to shoot my first deer and it's going to be a nice five by five whitetail buck, that, you know, that's kind of pie in the sky. Sure. I mean, there are places that you could probably go do that. Um, I think a, a deer hunt is, is, you know, the most popular hunt across the United States um, just because that's the kind of the the basic of entry of what people usually do they're going to hunt for deer yeah um i would say one of the easiest i shouldn't say it that way one of the most successful opportunities to hunt would be you know hunting bears over a bait site now it's not easy and people say oh yeah well you're going to feed them and it's easy I, i challenge you you know pack bait into a bait site on foot on your back you know every day uh, in order to get you know, the bears come into your bait site. And I know in Washington, you can bait deer in Idaho. You can't. And maybe in Washington, a deer hunt over a bait pile might be a little more successful. A little more successful. Um, and there again, that's the differences between the game management practices from one state to another. Uh, but I think those, those avenues would be um, the easiest Easy is the wrong word. The most successful. Highest rate of success. Highest rate of success. Potential rate of success Mm -hmm. would be the best way to say it. Anytime you go to a place that has high population of a certain uh, species of animal that you're looking to harvest, that's, you know, you want to do your homework on that. That's awesome. You're not going to go to, probably not going to go to Alaska and hunt white-tailed deer because they don't exist. Right, right, right. Yeah. (laughs) You know, in Alaska, you have Sitka blacktail. Yeah. would moose. you say like pulling a moose tag or something is one of the higher, more extreme kind of advanced level? You know, in Idaho and in Washington, a moose tag is a once in a lifetime permit. So if yeah. you draw it, you have that opportunity. If you harvest, that's it. You're done. Um, if you don't harvest, you can turn your tag back in, wait for a few more years and start reapplying for that tag. Um, you go to Alaska, Yukon Territories, uh, northern British Columbia to do a moose hunt. Um, you pretty much have to go with an outfitter for the most part, and then you're talking expense. Um, so not just drawing the tag, but you know the expense of an outfitter that's going to be to the tune of twenty five, thirty thousand dollars in the Yukon. Wow! I mean, that's that's when we were talking earlier about it becoming an, a, an rich expen- man's sport. A rich yeah. man's sport. Those avenues you're looking at at that. Wow. Um, probably one of the most challenging hunts uh, that I personally have experienced is uh, I went twice to Quebec on caribou hunts and I was successful both trips, but there's so many of them and you either hit it right or you hit it wrong with regards to the migration. And, um, and luckily we were able to hit it somewhat right the first time. And we did hit it right the second time that I went. And, uh, but that was, it was challenging, but honestly it was one of the most pleasurable hunts that I've had just because it was new. For me, it was, uh, you know, the I'm not used to trudging around in the sure in the new environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. up up in the that type of an area where it's all spongy and mushy. Yeah, yeah. But it was great. You know, the wind blew up there every day, and so it was challenging. But it was it was cool. That's cool. There's there's a challenge in every hunt that you take part in, though. You just have to you have to figure that out and then meet that challenge. It's the nature of the endeavor. You know, it is a challenge. Yeah, that's cool. Cool. Dustin, thank you. I really appreciate you coming Thanks for on. having me up here. Yeah, I really enjoyed yeah. this today. This was awesome. And it's a pleasure. And yeah, I mean, you know, listening to you talk is actually very nice. It's very soothing. So I think our, hopefully our <laughs> listeners have a similar experience. So thank you a lot. I really appreciate it. And um, again, that's Alpine Industrial Manufacturing. Hey, so. can I do something with you yes, real quick? Yes, absolutely. I want to pray over your business. Please do that. Yes, do that? Absolutely. absolutely. Is that okay to do of that? Of course, hundred percent. Yes. All right. Yes. Do that. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to come up here, take this tour, and do this podcast. And what I just ask right now, just a blessing uh, to be upon this company as a whole, Lord. You've given them vision. You've given them desire. And Lord, I just ask that you just meet those needs that they have um, and the desires that they have. Father, thanks again for just the opportunity to come up here and share time with a brother in Christ, Lord, but uh, we just, we believe that you're going to 
uh, bless this business for the furthering of your kingdom. Lord, we just thank you and we praise you. We give you glory and honor. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Dustin. Appreciate that. Okay, thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. See you on the next one.